Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we do not enjoy the cruel, cruel heat of the summer. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. You're catching us sweating uh, through the UK's heat wave. Somehow, everywhere I go, it is now exceptionally sweltering, and I am not a fan of this. But we're also in the tail end of our teen horror season, which means that we're mostly now covering quite contemporary, very recent teen horror shows and films. And over the last almost 40 episodes, we've been looking at the teen horror subgenre and why teenagers and oftentimes teenage girls make for, some the most co- make for some of the most compelling protagonists and villains of the genre. School is almost out and we've only got a couple episodes left. And in this episode, we're looking at two very recent and very different aesthetically and tonally examples of this nostalgia for for an era gone by. We're going to be looking at Summer of 84 from 2018 and Knives and Skin. And to interrogate this and dive deep into both of these films, I'm joined by first-time guest and longtime friend, the BFI Southbanks film and events programmer Kim Sheehan, who is also the co-founder of Forever Young, a film club that showcases teen cinema. As per usual, please know that we spoil both films from the very beginning, so if you're concerned about spoilers in the slightest, definitely skip this one, uh, especially around Summer of 84, but I do encourage you to seek out both of these films. And if you're interested in more Final Girls content, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Girls UK, and we are also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Final Girls. Our next Patreon special is going to be a deep dive into the new season of Stranger Things in keeping with the nostalgia vibes and the teen horror of it all. But if you can't support us over there, that's absolutely fine. I would, however, really appreciate it if only to make myself feel better because it is way too hot right now. If you could leave us a little review over on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I read all of them and they make me feel things. So I appreciate every single one of you who leaves a review. And with all of that said... And all the begging done, please enjoy our takes on Summer of 84 and Knives and Skin. Kim, we're going to start now mm-hmm. because you're a busy woman and it's way too hot. <laughs> okay. But I have been trying for, I'm going to say three seasons, four seasons to get you into the podcast. So I'm really pleased that this is finally happening, Kim Sheehan goodness uh thank you i mean i don't want to say i get loads and loads of requests to go on podcasts uh but i get a few and they're all from you um, so so i'm really happy to be here finally uh i'm i'm very happy to be your official stalker been working on it for at least four seasons (laughs) and this feels and when we met and when we started becoming friends and talking about movies. One of the things that I know you always loved is teen movies. So I wanted to ask you about to start off and since it's your first time on the pod, <laughs> what is your relationship to horror in general and teen horror in particular? Well, I, I think it's interesting, especially when you talk about our, our friendship, because it feels like this uh, season you're doing is the perfect intersection of two of our real passions. You know, you are such a horror um, expert and, you know, teen movies are my uh, specialism and, and my passion. And I think that's that's where I'd have to start, really. I think I've always loved um, coming of age films and teen films. I think there's something quite magical about them. And it always frustrates me that they're not that respected I think they're kind of in like the romantic comedy side of things when it comes to, to cinema mm-hmm. and, and culture where, where they kind of look down upon our oh, teen movies are full of cliches or they're really cringe or they're really you know uh, f- fantastical uh, but I think they're really really special um, and I've always loved them and 
that is, I guess, has been my step into horror because I wasn't always a natural horror fan until uh, I kind of grew up and I got much older. I got into horror, I think, in my 20s, which I guess is quite quite late when you're getting into, into cinema. Uh, but teen horror has definitely been, was definitely a gateway part of that. I feel like in the, in the last couple of years, um, I was looking at, obviously, I've been reliving my Stranger Things obsession with the new season coming out. Um and I was looking at when teen horror or teen genre started becoming a thing again. Like Stranger Things, the first season came out in 2016. And then the uh, It movies, well, the first one came out the next year in 2017, became the most financially successful horror movie ever. Um, I was wondering if you think that there is something in the air where teen horror is going through a little bit or has been going through a little bit of a revival with those properties and kind of not being looked down upon as much as teen movies have been traditionally oh yeah um absolutely i feel i i mean i feel like perhaps the the respectability of teen horror can, can go back a little bit further to something like scream mm-hmm. where there's whenever someone does something quite interesting uh with a genre uh which causes people and critics to sort of pause and and take notice uh and cabin in the woods i think was another one where yes. uh, that was sort of quite well respected as mm-hmm. well but i actually think uh i'm so glad you mentioned stranger things because when you asked me uh to to do this podcast and talk about these two films summer of 84 and knives and skin the first thing i thought of was like well we can't talk about them without talking about stranger things because it feels like stranger things kind of kicked off uh, a little nostalgia porn wave i'd like to think of it (laughs) which these films like chime into um and i actually think that there's something um about the nostalgia that made it so successful and the same with it i think particularly with teen films it's and also with teen culture it's always interesting that certain generations are nostalgic for a generation they missed out on um so when you look at that in teen films you have things like dirty dancing you know that came out in the 80s but Mm -hmm. it's a magical holiday romance in the 60s and peggy sue got married the the same that came out in the 80s and it's about high school in the 60s and then you know in the the 90s you had uh days to confused came Mm -hmm. out and that kind of spawned off that 70s show and everyone uh was nostalgic for the 70s uh in the 90s and the early 2000s and Mm -hmm. i feel like stranger things came along at that exact time and so much of the uh, of that exact time where people were looking to be nostalgic for the 80s but so much of the kind of big cultural touchstones in the 80s the sort of the sci-fi the, uh, movies, the Spielberg movies, the E.T., the the horror, um, it just sort of really managed to be the perfect recipe of paying homage to all of them uh, for an audience who were really interested mm. in that era. And also really reminded us of this very teen separation, the social stratification, right, of you've got the weirdos and the outsiders, and you've got the popular kids. And I feel like Stranger Things also, part of this nostalgia porn wave, as you call it, <laughs> is also kind of a looking at a, a glamorizing or kind of uh, focusing more on the weirdos and the outsiders uh, more than ever before in teen movies. Like this is, you know, focusing on nerd culture or the sort of it, you know, the kids who would play D&D or um, go to horror movies and and cosplay as Michael Myers. Um, Like these kids who are really into their stuff as opposed to being worried about the prom dance and whatnot, which kind of reframes the teen movies that you know the that we know and love as well uh, absolutely and i think there's a sort of it's you know nostalgic it's 80s culture but it is fused with the kind of contemporary sensibilities around um sort of inclusion and being yourself being okay mm-hmm. um and you know the the character the thing about the characters in stranger things is that they're not they're not changing uh it's not like you know in classic 80s teen movies where it's like i've got to get the makeover or i've got to to learn to be a better person to get the girl or this this sort of thing you don't so much have that in stranger things i guess you have 
uh, I think it's series mm-hmm. two and eleven has or and three where she starts to engage with fashion and you know it kind of uh, assimilates a little bit. When she has a makeover with um with Max, which is a wonderful scene, by the way. Absolutely, and I think, but that is all about enhancing herself. And Max, I think, says to her, she's like, "Well, it's not about what Mike likes; it's not what about what mm-hmm. Hopper likes. It's mm-hmm. what, what are you? What do you feel like?" Uh, so that's, I think, that's something that also really works with Stranger Things and has uh, been a huge part of its appeal. Uh, and you're, you're right; I think it's such a great observation, which is. Um, yes it's the kind of fun things about 80s culture it's the fun pop music it's remember these video games uh and a simpler time people didn't have mobile phones and everyone (laughs) went out on their bikes it's kind of all that fun stuff that you say but then there's this glamorization of like you know but with this like i said the sensibilities of today where it's like uh everyone you know everyone can be included and everyone can be their sort of best selves and they're they're welcome here and they've got Mm -hmm. friends here and these are the real cool kids so it's kind of like a a cleaning up of the nostalgia of the looking back uh instead of focusing on how grimy and awful it must have been for for a lot of people yeah absolutely okay does this feel like a the griminess and the awfulness is that feels like a good moment to start diving into the first film of our double bill um and i i have to admit i'd always had this film on my to watch list and part of the reason why i wanted to include it is is to in order to have an excuse to watch it really so let's talk about the summer of 84 from 2018 and can you set the film up for us very briefly absolutely even though I know you do this in all your podcasts, you ask the guests to summarize the film. I've not prepared enough. Uh, but I Listen, will, you know I what? I, may, I mainly do it because I find it so fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I always say I know it, but uh, the character names always evade me, even if I've written them down. Mm-hmm. But here, here I go. Here's my best shot at the plot of Summer of 84. So uh, there's a sort of a lead uh, character, a 15-year-old boy called Davey, and it's about the the summer of 84 when he is doing his paper round, he's hanging out with his friends, uh, but he's also he's into conspiracy and uh, the his friends make reference to him having like theories about aliens and and that sort of thing. And he stumbles across an idea which is that the disappearances of teenage boys in the sort of extended local area that he's in apparently there's been a you know lots of disappearances over 10 years he decides that all connected and not only that but his neighbor is the one responsible and he's living next door to a serial killer i mean that's very good I, did you just come up with that right now yes <laughs> and i feel like i missed some stuff out but it's I think very that's, good that's a setup that's not the whole plot i was we'll get into the plot <laughs> I was just going to say, a teenage boy thinks he lives next to a serial killer. That's. Oh, man, that's so. You know, I did the long answer. I did all the working out, and you just wrote the, the correct answer in the, in the box there. That's perfect. No, I love it. Um, so, this is kind of a really. Um, you set up something really interesting uh, about the main boy. And by the way, I will also always forget the, the characters' names. Uh, yes. <laughs> about Davy being kind of a conspiracy theorist and always looking for um adventure or for something a bit more dark and sinister that's looming in the suburbia right can you talk about our main boys our protagonists and especially especially Davy and why he's kind of so intent on focusing on the re- on the darkness that might be lurking underneath something very simple and quotidian yeah, I mean the I think the the thing so there's like a, a four of these boys mm-hmm. uh and and Davy is the, the the main character and he's got his sort of his nerdy friend, his uh kind of edgy friend who's got family problems at home and then he's got his like faithful uh overweight sort of loyal sidekick uh type character. So I think the 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 way that these characters and this setup and the dynamic that they have um is very again it's nostalgic it's 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 a mm. bit it it's a bit uh like a lot of teen horror films there's always the kind of the gang of of characters and they all have different qualities which allows uh them to be read really easily it allows the screenwriter to to use them really well you know you have the the, the kind of comic 
relief being provided by the funny one the smart one always surprise has the exposition of i'm going to explain what this chemical is and (laughs) how we can use it to fight the bad guys but then you always have at the center um you know you kind of have almost like the blank canvas heroic one that people can project themselves onto uh and i think what is interesting about davy to this film's credit is that he's not he's not completely bland um and i think the fact that he's driving this uh thing of thinking his neighbor is a serial killer mm-hmm. and this sort of thirst uh for adventure and he has this bedroom where the wall is kind of covered in conspiracy theory news articles and and magazines and and, and that kind of thing and i think that works well as a trope because the whole film uh, is very much um you know, here comes a spoiler for Rear Window if anyone hasn't seen it, but it's it's a Rear Window setup, right? Yeah, he is, yeah. he he becomes obsessed with this idea, and then oh, there's reasonable explanations for everything, but are there? Mm-hmm. But no, there is. Right up until the end, when obviously it gets very dark, and it turns out that he was right. Um, and I think, but I think that's uh, interesting that you know he's this character who's sort of he's looking for this stuff. So naturally, you'd think the the twist would be that it's not real and it's all in his head, uh, but actually, it is. I actually kind of really loved the fact that the twist is that he is right. Um, and I was thinking of uh, Rear Window because uh, this kind of trope pops up a lot in teen-based movies, usually genre, because usually, it, you know, it's like, oh, my neighbor is a serial killer, my neighbor is a vampire, uh, <laughs> you know, or my friend is a is a killer as well, like Super Dark Times, which you covered on the pod, Fright Night, which we've covered here as well as part of the vampire season, Disturbia, which is a teen version of Rear Window. Uh, the Voyeurs, which is not really teen, but it's more of like an erotic thriller, uh, which is on Amazon right now. Like this whole idea of, oh, there's something really fucked up going on right next door and I'm the only person who can see it. It's so perfect for teens because teens would usually not be believed. Yes. Even if they have a lot of credible evidence. So the fact that actually these teens are correct in the same way as the protagonist of Fright Night was correct. His neighbor was in fact a vampire. Um, <laughs> how well does the film work with the idea of the killer hidden in plain sight. Well, I, I, do you know, I, I just want to take us on a little bit of a side road real quick. Take because me. Because Rear Window and films like this always remind me of one thing, which is uh, if you're a Simpsons fan and you watched The Simpsons a lot as a yeah. child as I did, do you remember the episode Bar of Darkness, which is the Rear Window parody? Vaguely, yes. Well, it's a weird, it's a rear window parody, and Bart is uh, he breaks his leg, he gets a telescope, and then he starts spying <laughs> yes! on Ned Flanders. Yes! And it's it's exactly rear window. There's all this suspicious stuff going on. It looks really obvious. He sends Lisa around to sort of figure it out, um, and the end result is it's totally uh, fantastical. It's it's all easily explained. Uh, Maud had gone away for the weekend and, and Ned Flanders isn't a, a, a killer, a wife killer, and everything's all good. And I watched that as a child. And then for so long, I actually assumed that's how Rear Window ended. I didn't actually think, I thought there was a twist where it was like, he didn't murder his wife after all. And it wasn't until I was older and I watched Rear Window and I was like, and it almost became like a double twist for me because I was expecting (laughs) it. I was expecting it to be like, oh no, Jimmy Stewart, he got it all wrong. And then when it turned out he was right, I was really shocked. Um, so I always think about that when Kim, I Kim, I love this so this. much. I actually, lo- I, I fucking love this so much. I am so happy you had that experience. That's beautiful. It's <laughs> so I- sweet. I genuinely think there must be quite a few kids like me where if your first uh, touchstone of Rear Window was a Simpsons parody, then Rear Window is a real shocker and a real surprise for you. And I always think about that when I watch films like this. And I've kind of... I I need I needed the ending. I needed the ending uh, to sort of scratch that itch for him to be right uh, b- because of it. But also, I think it just... It chimes into something that uh, I think I'm going to probably talk about this with with both films mm-hmm. uh, with knives and skin as well which is teenagers like to watch films in which the teenagers are right you know the the teenagers are, oh are misunderstood. my god yeah. <laughs> the teenagers are misunderstood or they're more mature than the adults or they're mm-hmm. more mature than the adults think mm-hmm. because that feels like a really 
beautiful vindication when you're that age because you're you're trying to be an adult yourself you're trying to step into that world and so often you're being kind of held back or or, or warned by adults who are saying no you're, you're not an adult yet or you don't know this yet or still listen to me I know better than you and it's really frustrating so to consume media that kind of says do you know what like uh the teenagers are the smart ones is just it's just beautiful people people love that and i think that's uh that kind of uh chimes with both films actually mm. that the teenagers are the ones who are right or the ones who are more mature and what do you think of Mackie as a serial killer but before we find out that he is actually one and when you know the twist is revealed the fact that he is actually a threatening figure uh, I, I think I think it's really well done. Uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, but he is from Oh, Rich Madman. Rich Sommer. Yeah. Yes, and he plays such a lovely good guy, Mad Men, and yeah. I love I love that kind of casting where it's like oh, casting against type mm -hmm. uh, type thing, or casting with type because you want hit at the beginning. You want him to be like, oh, he's a friendly neighborhood uh, cop, and, and and what I really like is the way that the the film introduces him that sequence where uh, Davy he calls Davy over and he's like, please help me shift this uh, table into the basement. And you're watching this. This is the, you know, your first introduction to these characters. And you're mm. just like, oh my God, <laughs> don't go with the random man to his basement. Don't, don't do that. I mean, yeah, Davy, have you not seen enough movies? Like this yeah. is, this is how you get murdered, child. You say you're into conspiracy theories and obsessed with with murders, but you're just walking straight into what could potentially be a murder. Uh, but then, you know, obviously the film plays with that, and it's mm. um, it builds on it. You know, he take he goes into the house and he's like, "Help, help me move this bit of furniture." They get into the basement. Oh, we've got to go further into the basement. We're going further into the darkness. Mm. So it kind of it's like you know pushing and pulling where you're like, "Oh, is he okay? Oh no, is he going to be okay now?" Uh, but ultimately, in that that first segment you know, the Mackie comes off as a good guy. He's just a guy in the neighborhood who needs help moving his his table. So I think I think he's done really well. Um and I think he's portrayed sort of really well. Uh that you do have those moments of, no, he's probably fine, but then he's almost you know, he's friendly, but then he's too friendly when you see the way he interacts with um with, with his parents, with Davy's parents, when when Davy's dad drags Davy uh, around to Officer Mackey's house and is like, apologize to him for thinking he's a serial killer, and Mackey's all like, oh, don't worry about it. You're like, oh, he oh. feels really sinister in that moment. And Everybody you know thinks then. that. I've just got one of those serial killer faces, you know, which exactly. he does. He does, but he didn't have it so much in the opening or you weren't sure and mm. i think that's why he's he's done sort of really well you know if if i'm being absolutely you know kind of really critical about the film i feel like when he's at his weakest is mm. right at the end the sort of you know kind of epilogue where it turns out he was hiding in the attic and then he takes them out to sort of finish them off and i feel like in in all that stuff i feel like ah, that's it's a little bit weak for me i think it, it it goes obviously it's emulating a sort of uh nostalgia for a slasher film but i don't think when he's uh sort of uh, baiting them and torturing them in in the forest that that's when the kind of cracks seem to form for me in that that performance that's quite interesting because i like one of the things that i really liked about the film that really worked for me was actually in rich's in rich summer's performance he's got that sort of physicality that face can be that can either be really really warm and approachable or like good guy style or really sinister because and i mean this with no disrespect he looks like almost every serial killer ever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if you look at the cast, there's two physicalities that we associate with serial killers. One of them is the kind of hulking, uh, you know, big Ed Kemper, kind of big bear kind. And then the other is a kind of hyena, like, really small Charlie Manson type mm. physicality. And... Uh, Again, I mean, with no disrespect, because I think Rich Sommer is a really handsome fella, but he does, you know, he can turn it on and off in that sense. And obviously the context matters a lot, but he's so lovely and approachable, but w under the right lighting and in the right scene, 
He's yeah. incredibly sinister and his he almost seems bigger. He seems larger, more hulking, more menacing, because even that smile and that kind of very warm face and demeanor that he has turns real creepy. Well, really quickly. It. I feel like he was the I found the most menacing was when he was like, you know, with with the father, like I was saying, where he's yes. in those scenarios where he's playing both those roles mm -hmm. and i think it was just when it got really overt for me at the end where he it was like oh god he's pulling them out of car and he's i think for me it's maybe less of a criticism of his performance but this sort of beat of the film um for for me i just i think at that point i was just like oh are we doing this and also and, and and this is silly and this is like just total personal emotional response but i was kind of pissed that they killed woody at the end because he was such a lovely faithful sidekick and was just mercilessly had his throat slashed for, for me which felt for no reason at the end mm. there uh so so that broke my heart uh, a little bit. Yeah, but you gotta kill someone. Why would he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll I'll give you that. I'll give you that for sure. I did really love his speech. I know it might. I know it. It might be a little bit too on the nose, but I love the actual menace in there. You know, the whole "I'm not gonna kill you now. I'm just gonna make sure that you live a long life." Looking over your shoulder, like you're gonna live half a life because. I want to toy with you for the next 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah, that really, that that's sort of perfect. It's a perfect boogeyman thing. Mm. And it's going back to, uh, honestly, we're going to say the word nostalgia so many times. Podcast, <laughs> but going back to nostalgia, it's that, you know, it's the leaving the doorway open. I don't mm -hmm. think it was a film that was ever intended to have a sequel, but most of those sort of teen horror films of the 80s do leave the door open for, for a sequel. Mm -hmm. Um and I think it was definitely a really effective way of doing that. And I do wonder, and, you know, both of these films feel like summer films. And and maybe I'm just thinking about kind of summer horror because it's incredibly fucking hot right now. Uh, but <laughs> there's this thing that Mackie says that I wrote down where he was like, oh, you know, I remember what it was like to be a boy in the summer. It's hard to pass up an adventure. What do you think kind of about the the summer moment? That plays such a big role with um with teen with teen films in general, I think, but a lot of them are also horror films. Yeah, I think it's definitely I think for teen films, it's that the summer is always the penultimate time. You know, it's the time for kind of freedom. You're, you're liberated. You're not in school, and it's and it's a kind of a long period. So it's it's for young people to have life-changing experiences or you can reinvent yourself in the summer and come back to school a different person or you can meet uh, a new friend in the summer and it can change your perspective like that's that's the uh, kind of the beauty of the the summer and i think it's often used as a device in coming of age films uh, for that reason um but also i think from a kind of practical plotting point of view the good thing about the summer is that the kids are on their own mm -hmm. you know it, it, the, the parents the adults they just kind of become on the fringes mm -hmm. and it's a bit like this in stranger things as well i think i can't remember if season three i think is set in the in the summer uh the the one that's kind of based around the the mall mm -hmm. uh because you can effectively pull away from the the adult characters uh which i think is quite important not just for coming of age but for, for horror as well because mm -hmm. so much it's that classic thing isn't it it's like well, why wouldn't they just tell their parents that they thought the guy mm -hmm. was a serial killer even though that works really well in summer of uh, of 85 but i think it's just as a kind of a device it just liberates your character somewhat and it's interesting because even though it has a kind of summer vibe um knives and skin is set during sort of term time so you mm. have that thing where the the kids they they have to go to school and they have the regularity of of, of school whereas uh something like summer of 84 is kind of less uh less constrained by that You've led me into my next question. So what sort of role do adults play in this? Because obviously the big interaction, the big interplay is between the kids and this one slightly sinister man that lives next door to one of them. But what about the other adults? Well, I think, like I said, they, they're very much on the fringes of the story. And um, I think it, it's the tricky thing about Summer of 84 being a, a film. It has that constraint, whereas, you know, something like Stranger Things being a miniseries, there's so much kind of uh, space to explore all the characters. But I feel like the um, the adults in Summer of 84, they're the sort of 
absent adult tropes as I was talking about that you get in the summer in teen films um, and the bits that we see of them I feel like they're not quite meaty enough so Woody the the overweight sidekick character he has a, a mum who's an alcoholic and you sort of see him taking care of her and he makes references to taking care of her but that doesn't quite go anywhere one of the other kids i can't remember his name the kind of more edgy one mm-hmm. he has a sort of a kind of very um his home life is uh his parents are fighting and he makes a reference to how in danger his his mother is um of like you know oh i think he says something like oh i don't want to be the witness to a murder suicide which is why he doesn't want to go back home yeah which sort of talks about the you know the extreme uh nature of what's going on in his household and again that's not really it's not really explored and i think perhaps what's happening with those adult characters is um you know they're just they're there to show why they can't have faith in these adults or they can't really trust them like who you know who can they turn to when they think that they've got a serial killer uh in their midst the the adults are either you know not trustworthy or just not useful enough Mm. well and it's also this thing of adults just thinking that the kids don't notice that yeah. they're not noticing these things happening around them and how they're affecting them. And I think it's a nice moment to kind of, before we start wrapping up, to talk a little bit about Nikki, who is the only sort of female Ooh, character yes. in the film. And her parents are also, uh, her parents are getting divorced. And that's one of the things that she opens up about and kind of bonds with Davy about, even though she starts as basically someone who they all have a crush on and very slowly becomes a human being. Uh, in their eyes but there is also I want to ask you what do you think about Nikki and also about this kind of recurrent trope particularly in coming of age and in teen movies and in teen sex comedies too of kind of light stalking peppered throughout the film so I'm so glad that you've made Nikki a talking point in herself because uh, Nikki, I think, holds me back from enjoying the summer of 84 to like its kind of full potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you sort of covered it in the question there in that. So Nikki is the sexy girl next door. She's a teenager, an older teenager. She's very much, uh, you know, set up as older and out of the league of these uh, 15-year-old boys. Um, however, yeah, she does interact with Davy, and you said she kind of becomes a human being. I would argue against that, maybe because I think Fair? she becomes, I think she becomes the fantasy of a teenage boy. Um, you know, she mm-hmm. sort of slips through his bedroom window, or walks into his house, and is like making herself at home, and he. He says something like, oh, you know, I've I've seen you in your bedroom window, but I've never seen you naked. And she, you know, says, ah, oh, that's a shame. I've got a great body. And it is so like, oh, my goodness, that is a teenage boy's fantasy of a response uh, <laughs> from, from a girl. Like no girl would ever say that to a 15 year old boy who's been, uh, you know, spying on her. So the boys they do they do the sort of um voyeur thing through the window and yet when she's confronted with it she's like oh so charming and oh i'm flattered in in a way and i just don't think she ever gets developed beyond being a teenage boy uh fantasy and i was trying to think and i don't know if i'm giving the film too much credit because i i didn't know is is this part of the nostalgia that she is so two-dimensional and she is like, you know, it's funny how early we talk about Stranger Things and saying mm-hmm. like, oh, it's all the atmosphere and the vibes and the culture of the 80s, but the kind of uh, glamorous sensibilities of today. Um, and I was like, well, is is uh, Summer of 84 just really <laughs> double downing on the nostalgia and being like, well, do you know what? It was just like this and this is how we treated women. Um, and what what's interesting is... Um, before before coming on to the mm-hmm. pod today, I was doing a little bit of uh, kind of reading around about the film and uh, refreshing my memory. And I went on Letterboxd mm-hmm. and the most liked review on Letterboxd is from the director, Sean Baker, mm-hmm. uh, director of Red Rocket and The Florida Project. And his take on the film is he said, oh, this is so authentic, right down to the way that the boys talk and how they talk about women. Like, this is what we as boys were like in the mm-hmm. 80s you know the whole i fucked your mum and stealing a national geographic because there's a boob on it and you know and this sort of thing he's like this is just what we were like and what it's like mm-hmm. so i respect that and i i you know i'm like not 
feeling let down by the the language and the way that the boys talk about women because yes that's boys boys will be boys but I just felt like this character who could have had a bit more steel about her the way that she it, and and I also it's kind of almost made a, a, a joke in the, in the film right Davy is hanging out with her mm-hmm. and then his friends don't believe him and his friends don't believe mm-hmm. what happened between them and at one point I thought that was going to be a twist because I didn't believe him I was like is this his imagination and it wasn't it's a it, reality in the film but it feels like his imagination because it's so unrealistic and she is so two-dimensional that's a really excellent point no 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 notes absolutely absolutely fuck that's actually really interesting sorry i'm a little bit speechless um oh my goodness i do wonder kind of based on what you just said i do i don't actually know i don't really know how to feel whether it's on purpose that nostalgia the recreating of nostalgia even with the darkness of it even with the dark bits because if you look at the teen stuff even teen horror and, and teen movies in general from the 80s and even the early 90s it's very, very stalkerish. It's very, very uh, locker room talk vibes. Mm-hmm. It's your porkies and all the influence that that had. Um, and that I think there, there are two very interesting video essays by a uh, YouTube video essays called Pop Culture Detective. One is called The Ethics of Looking, and the other one is Stalking for Love. And they're both about kind of this first the trope of kind of stalker stalking especially stalking a woman being kind of a a trope of romantic movies Mm. and that's kind of been accepted as a as a form of courtship not as actual (laughs) stalking and then kind of the the ethics of of looking of that there's always it's it's how we privilege kind of the voyeurism even within the story of be of us looking at characters that don't know don't know that they're being looked at and i think this happens a lot here and i think the i don't know if the film is doing it on purpose as a kind of commentary on that of that you know sean baker commented thing of oh this is just how we were until we realized that hi hello women are also human (laughs) beings um or if it's a narrative flaw if it's kind of just embraced and internalized those tropes so much that at no point does Nikki need to become a, a human being um i was a bit softer on her perhaps because so much time is spent with her talking about how her parents divorce divorce makes her feel mm. but it's in the interactions with the other boys it's essentially like that moment in is it 16 candles where more molly ringwald's character gives her underwear to the anthony michael hall character yes. and be like i know you need to prove this to your to your gang to the to the boys so here's my underwear we both know nothing happened <laughs> but i'm gonna let you pretend for the public that something did yeah and uh, i mean and that's that's another example of you know it's female character written by a man where you think about it and think would would we be so generous would we be so flattered by that kind of attention or would Mm. you just be absolutely creeped out please get me out of the car asap and uh i need to get a really thick blind to make sure my 15 year old neighbor isn't staring at me with his friends It is. I think. It, I, I think that's interesting. I'm glad you sort of um, you, you brought up those those video essays and and that that point of view because I really was on the fence where I couldn't decide whether you know this was I don't know an intelligent look at the trope or uh, or trying to kind of come to terms with like you know it's all nostalgia it's all homaging stuff but some of it's uh more pleasant to think about than others Mm. um and i'd like to think uh that that, that's what was an attempt was made at that but it just didn't quite kind of pan out and i also feel i don't know like it's interesting hearing your response to her as you know she's this figure and she's going through her parents divorce and that's kind of really tough uh for me that I, I didn't quite respond in, in in that way. I kind of felt like that was just more layers to her in the kind of manic pixie dream girl way where it's like, oh, I'm so sad. You know, I've got so sad in my life. I just need something that makes me happy. Maybe it's my 15-year-old <laughs> neighbor, you know? Like, yeah. why doesn't she have any friends to go talk to? And, you know, they, they make a joke out of... And that was another thing where I, I couldn't decide whether it was a fantasy or not because the his friends they say ah oh, she's really into this guy's brother he's 20 and he works at the hardware store and then when he asks her in their like one of their exchanges he's like are you not interested in this guy and she's like no he's 20 and he works at the hardware store as if that's like a 
<laughs> real negative to to him and it's like well she's she's much older than them she's uh sexy she's glamorous she dj's at the the club or whatever uh she's got a lot going for her but she's actually no she's really sad inside and she just needs a little 15 year old boyfriend it's because he's the only person she likes in the entire town kim <laughs> exactly exactly that you're you're right that is a line she says in the film and we're supposed to swallow like it's real (laughs) um so i think it's time for us to move on to knives and skin um (laughs) and same as with summer of 84 can you summarize the film for me briefly uh, okay, yes. So Knives and Skin, uh, it starts off uh, with the sort of story of Carolyn. Carolyn is a beautiful, blonde, uh, wholesome schoolgirl. Um, but she, we catch her, she's in the middle of what seems to be a sort of secret liaison, a secret hookup with a guy from the football team. He mentions he has a girlfriend and uh, there's sort of a lot of sneaking around that's going on and they're meeting up at night at the sort of edge of this uh, lake, this sort of foresty area. Um, They're making out and she decides she's not that into it anymore and tries to kind of stop it. He gets angry, he uh, sort of hits her or pushes her down and then just drives off and leaves her there. Uh, and then she disappears and not just, um, you know, disappears, disappears, literally the trace of her body we see on screen just evaporates uh, into air. And then the film follows uh, her classmates and the people in her life and how they handle her disappearance. Again, beautiful. And I love that you mentioned kind of the, <laughs> the supernatural element of this up front because it's really hard to call this film a specific type of genre um i quite like you know it's been called uh uh dream horror it's been called teen horror uh, which is why i included here a mystical teen noir uh it's been talked about with reference to david lynch's work a lot uh it's been called like a teen lynchian film what's an appropriate way to frame it for you like how how does one even start to enter into the world of knives and skin well, that's one of the beautiful things about this film is that it, it it does fall out of convention and genre and and tropes so much, but also sort of embracing them in, in another weird way. But I do think my favorite description is the mystical teen noir. I think, that, <laughs> I think that is perfect. I think that does kind of capture a lot of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is also a hundred percent David Lynch uh, as a massive inspiration for this. I think you can. There's some really clear Lynch uh, reference points, particularly uh, Twin Peaks, which are obvious. Uh, I think Carolyn has the whole Laura Palmer vibe. She's very, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful, blonde, and uh, you know, kind of quite wholesome. However, there's something darker about her, and she's, you know, she's sneaking around with this other guy, and there's like some other side to her. Um, and I think also in the in the whole town there's the kind of twin peaks vibes in that like everyone has their own idiosyncrasies like every adult is a bit of a weirdo <laughs> um which is yeah. so so david lynch um and i also think there's this humor in knives and skin as well which i i i think i'd forgotten after i saw it for the first time but then when i caught it on a rewatch i was like gosh it's like there's this lots of this kind of beautiful absurd humor going on which is very david lynch i think one of my favorite characters is uh the conspiracy theory mother the mm-hmm. and andy and joanna's mother um you know it, i think it's actually a, a weirdly um a wholesome portrayal of someone with a mental illness that doesn't punch down uh too much she is she's got a few things going on this woman and you can see there's tinfoil cushions around and she doesn't feel like doing things she needs to have a nap because the vibes are off mm-hmm. um but also just the delivery of some of her lines and the kind of deadpan humor that that goes along with it feels like a very david lynch thing so i think the lynch influence is probably the strongest essence of the film that you can kind of grab hold onto but everything else in terms of genre is i think very much subverted uh but mystical teen noir does a good summary for me and i i'm glad you bring up the um the, the conspiracy theorist mom because we do actually spend quite a lot of time with the adults in this film almost as much as with the teenagers especially with the mom of of carolyn 
um, as she's dealing with the grief of her daughter disappearing. Um, how do you think the, how do you think it balances kind of this, you know, focusing on the teenagers and focusing on the adults in this town? I think I think it balances it really well, and it's almost like the inverse of uh, Summer of '84, where the you know the adults kind of on the fringes and almost stock characters uh, in a way, or they have you know one quality about them. Like Summer of '84, you you have that alcoholic mother, and that's it. She's an alcoholic and she sleeps, and there's nothing else really going on. Whereas Summer of '84, they're also richly uh, detailed. But it, you're right; it is in a way where it's a balance, and they're almost as important as the teenage characters, and they have their own lives and they have their own subplots going on, and they interact in uh, in, in different ways. I think you know my kind of next favorite character, I guess, would be the the mother of of, of Carolyn. I think she has done so well, and it's such considering the film has a lot of characters in it and it's very multi-layered and there's a lot going on i think it's such a beautiful sensitive portrayal of grief um and especially the you know how she interacts with the the teenage boy the who's the last person to to see carolyn alive um so yeah i think that the the adult characters are just as richly drawn out as the teenage characters but again going back to the sort of the david lynch of it all uh, interestingly again it's like Twin Peaks where the adult characters are so messed up they are doing you know crazy things none of them have their lives together none of them seem to be able to explain to each other what they really want whereas the teenage characters are much more mature and uh, have a better shot at doing that and it takes us kind of back to that summer of 84 thing we were talking about where like there's something so appealing about a teen movie which says hey you know teenagers or young people watching you you've got it you've mm -hmm. got it together these adults they don't one of the things that's really interesting to me about this film is that there is no right or wrong way to be an adult or a teenager in this film it doesn't really it really actively refuses to place its characters in those kind of tropey boxes that we that we know and kind of love or accept at least from teen movies um what do you think about the way that um what do you think about the the high schoolness of it all you mentioned in at the start of our chat kind of the fact that even though this very this very bad thing happens this classmate of theirs disappears they still have to keep going they have to keep going to class even the mother who was their choir teacher um has to yeah. keep going through the motions so they're constantly still having to go with the every day and with the day-to-day -day of their lives and in the high school but the tone the mood of the high school has changed completely yeah i mean i i'm glad you mentioned the sort of the, the stock characters because i think uh what the director jennifer Reed did is really well um and why this is an interesting film to look at in in comparison to summer of 84 is that she she takes like the essence of nostalgia but she plays with it and turns it into something else mm -hmm. uh, and i feel like that's there with the stock characters she has stock characters but uh they aren't the ones that we're used to seeing and they're subverted and i think you can't talk about knives and skin without talking about um the wonderfully diverse cast that she has mm -hmm. um but in a way that the, the the diversity of the casting and the diversity of the, the characters in this story doesn't feel like a tick box exercise. It doesn't feel um, like a diversity exercise. You have uh, the sort of the popular princess is, um, you know, she's she's a black girl. She's the sort of head of the cheerleading squad. But then you have other characters um, it, it, the characters in the band, you have a Muslim uh, girl, but she's a punk and she's styled sort of accordingly. And these aren't just the kind of side characters who don't really get a look in, they're at the centre. And it's not just um, sort of diversity and race. It, there are queer storylines as well that are kind of running along in, in the centre of the film, but not in a way where it's like, oh, well, make way for the white heterosexual people who are actually the leads. Um, and these are their friends who, uh, who dip their toes into diversity in different ways. Um, they're, they're all sort of richly uh, a part of the story and at the centre. So I like that that's, you know, she plays around with those stock characters. Mm -hmm. And I think she also, when it comes to the jock, the, the, mm -hmm. the football character, he's probably the most like his stock character. But the thing that she really does is sharpens his edges and it makes him very realistic. Like, you know, a lot of this film is about the violence um, 
the violence that boys and men inflict on on young women and she does not shy away from that with with his character yeah i think you're very right with the jock character in particular because there is absolutely no part of him that is forgivable or likable like nobody even tries to pretend that he is unpleasant and nasty to everyone and kind of the big there's there's often a big confrontation moment in teen movies and there is one here as well but there is it's it does not come as a surprise like everybody had already been sort of avoiding him he's already kind of a despicable character but here it's in no uncertain terms when he's just told no you treat women you treat girls you treat women like shit there's no you can't fight for it no amount of like popularity or anything can deny what everybody knows and nobody really backs him up either yeah like you, um, yeah so go ahead oh i was just gonna say i think it's it's interesting um because it, in a way you know going back to the the how uh jennifer Eder sort of plays with the essence of nostalgia but doesn't double down on it like the summer of uh 84 is that uh you know the the jock character sort of traditionally in teen movies he is redeemable as you say you know you have uh, in the breakfast club he's he's oh it's just a masculine front and he's really a softy underneath or you know or the jock character could be misunderstood but he's a real prize in uh john hughes movies whereas Yes, in here, it's absolutely, you know, it, it's realistic. Like, I think she, she made this film at a time, uh, I think, I can't remember if the, the documentary uh, Red, uh, Red Roll came out before or, or around this time, but I think it was a time when people were really looking at the toxic masculinity, um, in particularly in American high schools, and the way that teenage boys treat women and how it's often... I don't know, often in American culture and society, it's like, boys will be boys, and oh, mm -hmm. those rascals. And actually, no, it's incredibly fucking dark. They hurt women, they rape women, mm -hmm. and in some cases, they, they murder them. And that is, like, she absolutely confronts us with that and, and that character, and it makes no efforts to, yeah, soften his edges. I love that. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Jennifer Reader too, who is such an interesting filmmaker in general. And and a lot of her work, especially in short films, has really honed in a visual style, but also thematically, she's always been very interested in, in teenage girls and their worlds. And I wonder, how would you... How would you describe or kind of what do you think of the the mood that the film creates? I think, you know, it's overused now, but this film is, as the kids say these days, a complete mood. And a complete mood. I, do you know what I thought you were about to say, which what? I think is overused these days, but I feel is, you know, really well done, possibly pioneered in Knives and Skin, is bisexual lighting. <gasps> yes, it is. <laughs> Jennifer Reader is like, bisexual lighting, let's go go you know there's so many beautiful scenes that are just paved in pink and and blues and purples but done really really well yes um, and sorry that's where i thought you were going <laughs> uh, i i wasn't because i i don't i'm gonna disagree with you i don't think my sexual lighting was perineal here i think it's way back in the 80s uh that they started doing it um, no, not pioneered then. Celebrated. Celebrated. Well, maybe it's, yes. the, it's the nostalgia again. It's she's playing with the nostalgia, uh, mm. the little bits of nostalgia, but in a way that it feels sort of contemporary and and, and fresh. And it's it's got the same, but very different, but not the similar uh, aesthetics as promising young women in the sense where it's very girly. But there is a darkness and a grotesqueness to that hyper femininity. You know, the mm -hmm. pink lighting, all the, all the little knickknacks, all these worlds in teenage bedrooms, the iconography, like the clothes iconography of high schools, of the cheerleaders, of the band squad, like the jocks, everything. And even with Carolyn, with Carolyn's mom, she kind of starts almost trying to feel her daughter through her objects as she's trying to process everything so i was wondering kind of how do you think what do you think about the aesthetic and the mood that this film creates um i love it i think it's the strongest most fun thing uh, about this film and it's a film that's very strong in other areas but mm. i i absolutely think it's the the jewel in its crown um what i like about the the sort of the style and approach of, of jennifer reader is it feels like she is mixing so many things that she's interested in 
but uh, again, to compare this to Summer of '84, it's it, she does it in a way and, and and gives it a quality in that it's almost timeless. Like I remember the first time I saw this film, I was like, "Wait, where are we? Where's is, where is this set? And when is it set? Because the fashion is so sort of beautiful and 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 chiming into different eras. But there's also some cassettes are being passed around. Uh, they make reference to listening to records, and I think it isn't till like a good portion into the film that you see the first mobile phone, and obviously it's a smartphone, and that kind of <laughs> anchors me back to where I should be. But it gives it this timeless quality, which I think you know, even revisiting the film, I don't think it's it's dated. I know it's not that old, but it just it still feels very very fresh. Mm. I really love this. Um... This hyper feminine grotesque style, yes. it, I really, really dig it because it is it is essentially even in the music choices which we haven't really mentioned. Uh, you know, the choir of teenage girls singing these pop anthems. It really reminded me of what um, a lot of the stylistic choices also in Promising a Woman, even you know the the funereal orchestral take on Britney's Toxic <laughs> as well can't get enough of that because it kind of really shifts the mood of something that we're told is very light and unworthy of attention and unworthy of discussion and here it becomes so sinister without the thing itself actually ever being sinister yeah i mean i i'm glad we're going to talk about the the choir songs because mm. i i absolutely love that as as a device i think these days, uh, slowed down pop songs are definitely very much overdone in cinema. Yeah. When you know new trailers uh, drop with a, a different spin on an old eighties classic, but I think it's done so well here. I think it's done so beautifully. Um, my, I think my favorite bit is where they do "New Order" by Blue Monday, and it's mm -hmm. it's that opening line. How does it feel? Uh, to treat me like you do mm -hmm. uh, and obviously Blue Monday that's such a banger uh, and you love to sort of shout that line in a club or whatever but when you hear it sort of sung like that and it's it's sung over they're they're looking for Carolyn they're going through uh, sort of combing the mm -hmm. the field or whatever it is but it's also when one of the other characters gets physically assaulted and, and pushed down by by a boy and it's sort of this beautiful not heavy-handed but kind of a subtle epitome of what you know the whole film being about the the kind of violence that's inflicted on on these young women in in this culture and i just think it's such you know the way that jennifer reader deploys these covers isn't just in the fun oh you know these 80 songs and and isn't it fun that they're being sung in a, in a different way and it's, it's it's part of another sort of nod to nostalgia i just think they're so well placed and in a way that makes you um you know appreciate the song differently consider mm. the lyrics differently mm. uh yeah i think it's done perfectly and to start wrapping up, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that the combination, the double bill, the double billing of these two films felt very appropriate to you. And I was wondering if you could expand it, like, how do you think Knives and Skin and Summer of 84 talk to each other? Well, I think it's, it's interesting in a way that we, we talked about right at the beginning where, um, and and I remember when you said Stranger Things, I was like, I'm so glad you're talking about Stranger Things because I feel like you can't talk about these films without it because I think they are, like I said, the nostalgia porn wave. They they came out of it, and whether I'm sure these films were in development uh, potentially before Stranger Things, um, and maybe even in production while Stranger Things was was airing, but it definitely feels like Stranger Things opened the door for hey, do you know what's hot and cool? It's uh, coming of age, but it's like set in the 80s and it's hot and it's sci-fi and it's you know supernatural and this is what the kids dig now and then the sort of it's uh films coming out uh so quickly so i feel like they're connected in that that space and obviously they're sort of american indies as well uh but what i thought was another interesting parallel when, when talking about them and, and considering them was you know I've, I've talked a lot about how i think knives and skin is very much about um the treatment of girls and, and girls coming to terms with how they have to negotiate their lives with uh with men and, and predators and 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 violent men uh, and it's interesting that in summer of 84, there's the uh, sort of essence of that, but it's presented in that, um, you know, in that wink, wink, boys will be boys way, the mm -hmm. way they talk about women, the way they spy on on, on the neighbour. It's sort of like, 
oh ha 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 but that is a seedling that's a sort of you know an unhealthy uh culture that can turn and and blossom into the the horrible teenage boys that you see in eyes and skin Mm -hmm. i want to thank you because this has been a really amazing conversation uh thank you And Thank before, you for having me. And before we wrap up, Kim, is there anything that you wanted to add about either of these films that we haven't covered in our chat? Um, if you legit just give me a moment to check. Some of course. Of notes. <laughs> you know what? I genuinely don't think there is. <laughs> Great. I feel like we said it all. We said it all. This is the definitive interpretation of Summer of 84 <laughs> and Knives and Skin. Um, Kim, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. I hope it was a painless first podcast recording for you. I think it was, but only because it was you, Anna. <laughs> and um, <laughs> where can people find more of your work online? Oh, gosh. Uh, online. Uh, I'm barely online uh, as much as I should be, but uh, I'm the most regular place to find me is probably Twitter. Uh, I'm on there as uh, Kim Loves Films, or one word, uh, but I'm also on Letterboxd and Instagram uh, there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much again. Thank you.